I was in jail 25 times. There, I mean, there were short, like, overnighters, three nights. What were most of them for? Just the DUI, DUI, DUI drunken public, drunken disorderly, um, defrauding an innkeeper, which is running out on the tab. <laughs> I was famous for doing that. Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Sam Gibbs Morris. We get into all things healing, his journey with cancer, addiction, and being in jail 25 times. Please like and subscribe. Thank you so much. Sam. Yes. Welcome on the show. My brother. Great to be here. So feeling you and, and seeing some of your, your posts, you embody a lot of, of wisdom. And anyone I know, you know, wisdom in some ways is earned. Mm. So tell me a little <laughs> bit about your, your background and what got you to a point of, of waking up. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. Um, I, I, and, I, and I struggle a little bit with that word earn. Because I feel like, and I'll get to that the question in a second, but I feel like it's a little bit like <clears throat> it, it fits that narrative of the, of the more we do, the more we're worth. Like we have to earn worth. We have to earn this. But you're right. Like there's a path that happens where it's it's a it's a, a rite of passage. It's initiation yeah. where you you earn this knowledge and this wisdom and this embodiment. So um, I agree with you. <laughs> and uh, so what got me here? Um, grew up in Vermont. Um, really, really, I mean, Vermont's all small towns, but, um, grew up there. And if you had asked me 15 years ago at age, uh, so I'm 48 now, if you'd asked me when I was like 35, like right before I woke up, um, how was your childhood? I would have said it was absolutely amazing. Like I got to play tennis and golf and ride bikes around the woods every summer. And I got to ski every winter and we went on trips and there was like loving household, no physical, verbal, sexual abuse, like really, really pretty, pretty amazing childhood and then as i was like mid-30s i found myself in uh addiction alcoholism and so as i'm in these rehabs or these recovery rooms and i'm hearing these stories of like 99 out of 100 people and i'm the the one um 99 of the like out of 199 of them have this story of like alcoholic home abusive home sexual abuse verbal abuse physical abuse you know starting to drink when they were nine years old and I'm sitting there in these rooms, like having experienced addiction as an adult. And I'm like, I don't like, what am I doing here? How, why am I here? If like, if everybody else in this room has this hmm. similar story and I don't have any of that, what's going on? And so that tr triggered me or forced me into looking, taking a deeper look at what was underneath the childhood, what was really going on. And so what was really going on was two things. One, it was that absolutely amazing childhood it was that loving home it was the going on trips it was playing sports it was all the things and my experience internally was way different because i had severe asthma and severe food allergies so i was in a constant state of fire yeah. yeah i mean so you get it like yeah. you know it was a constant state of you know i would there would be mo like i'd wake up one morning and end up in the hospital that day because of an asthma attack or in the middle of the night, wake up just wheezing with, you know, that tightness that, you know, mm -hmm. and so, um, Mike's, uh, out, so externally, all that great stuff internally, it was a state of really questioning a lot, feeling threatened a lot, hypervigilance, which now I've turned into quite a superpower of like being able to read energies and, and feel it, feel situations out. Um, back then it was just like, where's the next breath coming from? Like, what if I eat that, if I eat that donut or that cake, is there going to be a peanut in there? You know, and I, I, I remember one time I ate a chicken salad sandwich and I got through half of the chicken salad sandwich and you think chicken salad, harmless, right? 
and there was a walnut in the other half of the sandwich. And I looked at it, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I told my friend, I was like, we got to go right now. And so that was when I was like 15. And so that was my experience of childhood was a lot of like a lot of time in the hospital, um, you know, weeks at a time in the hospital. And this was three or four times a year, you know, a lot of racing. And so racing thoughts and racing, literal racing thoughts and racing to the hospital at, at three in the morning sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was my experience. Now, translate kind of full circle that back to, to another external experience I was having was um, feeling very different, like seeing my other, my peers, my kid, the, the, my buddies running around. Like in Vermont, there's a lot of farms and hay bales and barns and like a lot of birthday parties are on farms. And so seeing my, my friends run around and play sports and, and not have asthma attacks and, you know, being able to eat food at will, it was like, wow, I, I'm, not, I'm not that. I'm less than that. So it created this really gap between what I was ex what I was seeing and what I was experiencing, and so then that led to some bullying too around breathing. And so what that did is that that created a massive amount of shame in my body, which is something that is you know it's kind of my cross to bear. It's like the thing I work through a lot. It shows up in my life. It's shown up recently in my life, and um, you know they say that shame begins when you feel humiliation or rejection for a basic need trying to be met. So for me, breathing. I was breathing the best that I could, but I would have kids look at me and mimic asthma attacks and, and bully me for that. And so that's that rejects that shame of like, oh my God, I'm, a, I'm, I'm ashamed of who I am. I'm ashamed of how I breathe. And again, like this is not something I knew about until I was 35 years old. Like it was, it, for me, it was the experience I was having. And there was a lot of focus on the external stuff, the love. And so... Um, as I got older and went, and then addiction showed up and it was, you know, a, a lot of that um, experience of childhood, the asthma, the food allergies, as a, as a child, I got kind of indoctrinated with a program of, okay, so when I have an asthma attack, there's a lot more attention and a lot more love on me. And it's not to say there was no love other times. It's just that I subconsciously noticed that when I struggle, there's more attention and love. So therefore, later on in life, so I, I would create these grenades in my life um, to, if I, if I felt like I wasn't getting love, I would create a problem because that meant, oh, the attention would come back. Mm -hmm. The love would come back. <clears throat> and that's the, the, not the root of the addiction, but it's a lot of, the addiction was, one is covering up that shame. And the second is creating these reasons to have attention and love for me. I can relate to your experience so much. I, especially the last bit you said about love. I grew up bad asthma. Mm -hmm. Why fucked me up was that my mom had some form of like Munchausen syndrome. She'd only give me love when I was wheezing. So mm -hmm. I never see her ever. Yeah. And then at like three in the morning, I was like, <clears throat> she'd come in and like hold me. Oh, my baby, everything's okay. Yeah. So I would almost manifest the asthma. I'd like every night, kind of like, I'd sometimes fuck, sometimes fucked up, but just try to like force myself to get asthmatic. Yes. So she'd come and love me. And I just like created this, this consciousness in me that whenever I'm sick or in a state where I'm not whole, I then am worthy of love. Then my consciousness was like victim mode, right? Whenever I have any little issue in my body or mind or something, it hyperfixed on it because mm -hmm. it, it, it learned to love myself that way or to my mom loved me. So yeah. then I'd just focus on the, like little shit and that would cause, in some way, my addiction was deeper, but in some way it would cause addiction because whenever I had any discomfort, all I, I couldn't do anything but just hyper-focus on it and obsess with it because I knew yeah. before that would, that would create love for me. Yeah. 
it's wild what we do, right? Yeah. That's what the, the body does that. Like we, there's a great book I'm reading right now called Existential Kink. It says one of the premises of the book is experiencing or having is evidence of wanting. Right, so you experience an asthma attack because there's part of you that's like, I want an asthma attack right now so that I can receive love. Yeah. And it's just wild to think that like everything that we want or that we create in this life has a purpose for us in that moment, whether that's a heartbreak or whether that's a scarcity or overeating or mm -hmm. obesity, whatever it is. Like there's an element of that that we can sit here and say as human beings, like, I really don't like this. Yeah. But the ego is like, no, nah, bro, we like this. Yeah, so take me to the addiction part. So yeah. what else was feeding it? And take me to the ugly, like, like the ugliness in it. And what, yeah. did, what did it take for you to get out, to jump out and okay. realize I can't do this shit anymore? Yeah, great. I'm also, I'm also a former, I'm a former drug addict, so nice. relate to. <laughs> nice, yeah. uh, thank, I, I honor you for walking through that and coming out the other uh, you side. You too, man. It's yeah. a fuck, it's a, that's a strong one. Yeah. Um, so the addiction was a lot of shame, you know, just covering up that shame. Like when I would, the shame manifested itself in a lot of social anxiety, right? So, like, I would avoid birthday parties. And that's where I found uh, tennis was, like, the thing that saved me as a child. It's because, like, being in social environments or team sports, I felt that so much shame and difference and burden almost. And so I would avoid tennis allowed me to, one, it was an individual sport, and it allowed me, I got so into it that I would, every weekend I was traveling around playing tournaments and, kind of built an excuse to not to go to birthday parties. So the social anxiety was massive. So a lot of the drinking had to do with like me walking into a crowded bar and like in my nervous system would at the time go to, and again, it's so crazy because this is all like things I know now that I didn't know then, but I was experiencing. It's like this, the not ignorance, but the subconscious experience. I would walk in and my nervous system would say, great, like everyone here is going to start making fun of your breathing in about five minutes. And so that social anxiety, just like, you know, it's like the spotlights here. It's like you walk into the bar and it's kind of dark and dingy or whatever, but there's this light, like, look at that weirdo. Mm -hmm. And that was what I was like feeling on the inside. And so get a few drinks in me. It's like, oh, like the, you know, now it's good. And I'm like, I become the life of the party and I tell jokes and I can hit on girls and like, it's comfortable. And so covering up that social anxiety was Kind of what I, when I first started to become aware of what was happening, like later on when the addiction was ending, um, that was the first thing I was like, okay, I know this is a, tr the tr a truth for me. And then there was depression that was underneath that. And there was um, generalized anxiety disorder that was under, uh, around there as well. And so another part of the drinking was FOMO. You know, having that super sheltered childhood, um, whether it be from a protect, like the protectivity of my parents or my fear of going and doing things, like my fear, like my friends in high school would go to Florida for spring break and I'd be like, that's scary. I don't think I want to do that. Mm -hmm. So as I got older and I, and I started to have these experiences, I would like, I would, my, and my friends would tell me this, my, my best friend, he would be like, he's like, you're just making up for lost time. Like you didn't really have a childhood because of the, pro, the, the shelteredness of it. And um, so it was FOMO. Like I was just trying to make up and trying to have these experiences that I feel I had missed out on. I didn't want to miss out on anything else. And it was all mis misdirected. Like there's, you know, these experiences I wanted to have were like, you know, partying in Saint Tropez and like getting on Kid Rock's tour bus and like these like pretty cool experiences. But like it was really just like I just want to party because I never got a chance to do it. And so... 
there was the shame, there was the social anxiety, the FOMO, and then later on I realized that there was shame. That really fueling all of that was this underlying shame that I was carrying around that was so heavy that in 2009 led me to a suicide attempt. And I didn't know it was a suicide attempt until 2021. Um, what happened was is that I felt I jumped off the second story of a bar, a balcony, um, downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, and landed on the pavement below, and woke up in the trauma unit the next morning. And I had no, I, I didn't know how, it, I blacked out, I didn't know how it happened, I didn't know anything, and then I was in an ayahuasca ceremony in 2021, in the middle of the night in the Amazon, this bright light showed up and was like, that was a suicide attempt. It was a sh- it was shame based suicide attempt. Just I had had so much, just this overwhelming feeling of shame my entire life about, and the shame looked like putting everybody in my life on a pedestal above me, other like my brothers, my my the, my buddies, my girlfriends, like everybody was like up here, and I was just pandering mm-hmm. because I'm this shameful. I'm I'm ashamed of who I am. So any kind of attention would be awesome. Like, yeah. feed me more, feed me more, and I'll do anything to please you. You feel you feel very grounded and sure of yourself now, which means you broke through the shame, thankfully. Yeah. How, how'd you get there? That's a, it's a big, big tall order. So how'd, how'd you do that? Yeah. So, you know, so shame, I mentioned that shame, um, it starts when we feel that humiliation or rejection about a, a way of being that we are experiencing. <clears throat> I found safe places to go tell my story. Um, I, I got comfortable with... Ex- looking at those things that I felt shameful about, whether that's through meditation, journaling, um, men's groups, men's weekends, men's retreats, uh, working with other men, coaching, psychedelic ceremonies, whatever it was, I went to those things, that I, those versions of me that I was ashamed of. Those versions of me that, you know, that version of me that was walking through the hallways in eighth grade that the kids would look at and have an asthma attack, mm-hmm. like feign an asthma attack for. Like I went to, I, and I, I essentially did inner child work on every version of me so inner child work you know it, it's the ch- the child but like there was versions of me when i was 20 when i was 30 that i had felt shame around and i went back and looked at those versions and said i forgive you and like work on that forgiveness and that love and like what, recognizing what in that moment was that version of me not getting and then provide it and 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 just understand that you know there's a level of forgiveness and compassion that's happened that in that moment I wasn't trying to be an asshole. I wasn't trying to be an addict. I wasn't trying to hurt my girlfriend. I wasn't trying to hurt my family. I was trying to survive. Like I was doing my. I was doing the best in that moment that I could to make it to the next moment, which was a experience. That that was my experience of childhood. It was like doing everything you can in a moment, and you know, it's like to breathe, to breathe. Like if you see, if you feel an asthma attack coming on, it gets real intense real quick. You know, and then if it, if it doesn't, if you take your inhaler, you're or dying. What, yeah, literally, yeah, and then <laughs> the you're inhaler, dying. yeah, you're actually dying. Yeah. Your lungs are stopping working, yeah. tightening up, and so you take your inhaler and it doesn't work, and you're like, wow, this is getting really serious. And same thing with a with a um, food allergy. Like you eat a peanut, or I eat a peanut, and the throat, you feel the throat start to close up, and you and you get red and hot and like the it, all these all these symptoms, and so, um, you know, in those in those moments of when the shame was, when I was doing shameful things, like being the guy that's up at eight o'clock the next morning doing cocaine when all his friends are now just getting up again. And I'm the guy in the corner still awake doing cocaine. Like that was a very shameful, at the time it was, 
I was having a, I could say I was having a good time, but it was, it was addict. It was addiction. And then looking back, it's like your friend's like, what are you doing? Like, can't you just stop? And so like that, that's shame. And, um, it was a lot of just really looking at those things and looking at the tracing and reverse engineering, all of the shame, reverse engineering it back to those moments when it was like the first feeling of like, I am different. I am shameful. I am different. I am ashamed of who I am. And what you're saying here is powerful. I think the problem with these addicts, a lot of them, is they still have so much shame for their addict self that they'll look, oh, man, I can't believe I did that stuff and all this shit, and they're just perpetuating that yeah. existence. And for me, I'll look back. At it. I mean, it's, it, I understand it, right? I look back at my life and I'll be like, how the fuck was I, you know, grabbing handfuls of, of Xanax and popping them down? Like, like, it was nothing. Like, how was ever me, considering where I am yeah. now, where you are yeah. now? Yeah. And I feel into that, like, you know, I, I understand who it was and, and, and why I did it. So for, for you now, what was, like, the, the, the key part of you, whether it be inner child, inner, in, what part of your life, like, who do you think was actually creating that, that mess? Like, what part of you was creating that? And how are you treating that part of you differently now? Like, how, how's your relationship with that person now versus when you were using drugs? Yeah, I, I love that, um, the analogy you made of, like, the comparison of, like, who I am now and, like, who was that guy? Yeah. And I think a lot of times... It feels it, that way. It, it, feel, it feels that way. And the first thing that I felt when I felt that way was like, yeah, that's not me. Like, pff, who's that guy? Yeah. And that's an exhalation. That's exiling. Yeah. And so that was like the big thing that I had to come to terms with to get over the shame was that um, I can't exile that version of me. It doesn't have to be... It's not something I get to extricate out of my body and say that that no that that didn't happen and then i meet people like i meet people now and i tell them these stories about me as an addict and they're like what <laughs> no fucking way and i'm like yeah i know and i get to say like that's that's part of who i am that's part of my story part of my journey so um talking like coming out of it is this recognition that it's, it goes back to this need for struggle and this need for love. And um, it was that I was, I had this, you know, con kind of contract with my parents about like, hey, when I struggle, you come into my rescue. Like, you come and save me. And the saving thing was like a big th through line, like mostly in relationships and with my parents, was that I would get in a relationship with a girl, we, we exchange I love yous, and that's true. And as soon as I hear I love you, it's like, oh, so you're here to save me. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that, like, me recognizing as a child that mo the way I'm going to survive is going to be by either parents, doctors, other people saving me. Because that was my experience a lot as a child. And even to the point where, like, I had the... I had esophageal spasms as a kid, so when I would swallow like a piece of steak or something, it would um, instead of like um, you know most the esophagus works to mo to kind of like push food down, mine would like go like this, and so the food would get stuck in my throat. And what that um, what that would do would be the Heimlich maneuver, again saving right. And so when I would I would create the I was creating these reasons this this experience that I needed saving from. And, you know, the addiction, then you can get into the physiology of it where it's like the, the reptilian brain takes over and the most important thing, the physical cravings and the, the, the actual addiction, the physical addiction part of it. For me, the emotional side of it was that I didn't feel safe enough in the world or strong enough in my being to do it on my own. 
So if I so if I'm not creating problems, if I'm not if there's not something to save me from, basically I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna float away and not matter and not exist. Hmm. And so recognizing that and that that comes from, for me it was my earliest memory. And my, my earliest memories are having asthma attacks and allergy attacks and and you know like that experience you of learn, eczema. You learn to be loved through being saved. Like that's right. Inevitable. Yeah. yeah, that's like you saving me essentially was my love language. Yeah. And so breaking free from that and then recognizing like, you know, at first I thought it was depression and anxiety with the addiction. And like, you know, so I handled those things right away. And then I got to the shame part of it. And then I got to the saving part of it. And then it was like, and then it was understanding that that kid that had never had the chance to heal or receive love was in essence using drugs and alcohol to receive love. Have you worked with, with helping heal addicts? Is that part of your, your work? Have you helped like heal people? Um, yeah, I, I did that for a while. Um, when, I, when I first, so I was a personal trainer for a while. And then when I uh, got out of, the, out of the gym side of it all, and I started working with guys that were just out of rehab. Yeah. So when I, I went to rehab six times. Wow. Um, you know, in my addiction, there's, you know, they th talk about jails, institutions, and death. I was in jail 25 times. 25? Yeah. There, I mean, there were short, like, overnighters, three nights. Or most of them four. Just the DUI, DUI, DUI drunk in public, drunk and disorderly, um, defrauding an innkeeper, which is running out on the tab. <laughs> I was famous for doing that. And uh, the longest one was eight nights. I stayed in jail for eight nights one time. And so... And that, was that a turning point for you? Or you just ran back to the bottom that, after that? That eight night one was, was at the very end. Like, that was my last jail stay. But it's still it can the drinking can, I I that eight night jail stint was in um, Catawba, North Carolina, Catawba, which is middle of the sticks, North Carolina. I was I it was at seven in the morning. I got arrested for a DUI, and my dad was I was on the way to see my dad who lived in Nashville, and he was like, "I'm not getting you out," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and he was like, "No," he's like, "You're gonna stay there," and I was like, "So I I'm, I'm helpless. Like you're in a jail cell. Like you can't do anything." And so um, I literally got, he finally, like a week later, eight days later, he came and got me and went back to his house. And I went to the closet to put my suitcase in the closet. And there was three bottles of tequila there. And I, so I had been in jail for eight nights for a DUI. And I saw that bottle of tequila and I cracked it open and slugged half of it. And this was 11 in the morning on the first day out of jail. And that was the level of avoidance, and like I, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And that, so I, I continued to drink for like another month after that. And then the final end of it was, uh, it was 4 a.m. on November 21st, 2012. I was sitting at my kitchen table, like group of friends, friends, like in quotes, um, people I was doing drugs with. <laughs> Uh, and my drug dealer, they all left and I was sitting there and I'm like, cool, I'm just gonna keep going. And then all of a sudden this wave of fear and anxiety. And it was like, you know, they say when you die, like your life flashes before your eyes. The last 18 years of my life in addiction all flashed before my eyes. Mostly the pain that I had caused myself and other people. I saw you know, my dad's face just sunken and gray. And I saw my sisters just crying, my mom crying. And in that moment, I just said, wow. I can't continue. This cannot go on. I don't care what has to happen next, but this can't continue. And so I called 911 and I told them I was having pretty scary thoughts. And they, uh, they took me to the psych ward, spent seven days in the psych ward, went right, literally a van from the hospital to the psych ward, 
to the airport and flew to a rehab in Michigan and then another rehab in Utah, and that was the end of it. And so, um, kind of got off topic there, but... Uh, no, I like this word. It's a good yeah. word to go. Yeah. yeah. I like this. Um, and so coming out of it, you know, it was... you. It, I handled the things I was immediately aware of, the alcohol being the first one. And for me, I'm extremely blessed that I've never once since that moment had any desire to drink a drink of alcohol. Not in the past almost 11 years now. Like, not even once have I thought, like, oh, it'd be nice to have a drink right what now. What is it that kills that craving is it just that vision of you hurting people like what is it that yeah i think that's part of it. yourself and what it actually causes you to have zero desire at all you know that's an unknown to me that's just like higher higher power source whatever you want to call Dude, it even universe. me like i have no i'll never do it just because my willpower's gone that strong but yeah. there's still a part of me that's like fuck man it'd be it'd be nice to you know pop a pop an adderall or because i used to yeah. I, I, at least the pharmaceutical that was my thing mm-hmm. was never alcohol was it was uppers and downers, like pharmaceutical yeah. ones. And every now and then I'm like, fuck, it'd be nice. But I, there's no way I'd do it just because I know my spirit's a nasty motherfucker. He'll, he'll, he'll slap me right in the shape if I ever do that. So yeah, yeah, I know yeah. I can't do it. But yeah. So I'm just curious, like, what in you do you think makes you not so, have any desire for it? I mean, when you say that, like, I can look back and be like, oh, I was, you know, tailgating at a football game, at a college football game in Miami in 2004. I was having an amazing time. That sounds like fun. And I know now there's two things. One is that um, there's three things, actually. One is, yes, the pain, the pain that was caused, um, the, the potential of that re- reemerging. No, thank you. Um, yes, yeah. tailgating in a football game was fun. Ending up in jail that, that night at three in the morning, not so fun. And that's also a potentiality. And this is the big one. I know for a fact that drugs, cocaine, alcohol... There is nothing that that would add to any experience that I'm having in my life right now, whether that's a tailgate, a football game, a concert, a party, whatever it is. It is, there's no question in my mind that it's just, it's just not in my field of awareness anymore to even think about having a drink. Um, and it's, you know, it, at first, of course, it was pretty prevalent of like, wow, I'm just coming out of a 18 year addiction. And, you know, I was in AA for the first six years. And then after six years of AA, I was like, this isn't working. This is not really where I'm supposed to be anymore. There's more out here for me, which is more spirituality, uh, plant medicine. There's, there's much more consciousness that it's going to bring me to this next level of, you know, quote unquote sobriety, which again, that's like a conversation that I don't even really resonate with anymore. I just know that I don't drink because there's nothing it would add to my life. Yeah. Well, I think it's a key thing. I think people who are addicts, it's a, it's a tricky thing in believing shit, right? If you're like, I'm an addict, and you're putting yourself in this box of like, I'm perpetually this piece of shit who can, no, in a matter of seconds, ruin my life. Yeah. It's tricky because you, you're not giving yourself the power. You could be, you know you know what I'm saying? Like for yeah. me, that's what, I went to A for like, I mean, for like a couple months. Mm-hmm. Everyone in that room, I just felt the energy. And this is me when I was, 24 now, so I was like 21, mm-hmm. and I just feel like these people are still in the same exact spot. And no yeah. judgment to them, like they're not taking the drugs, but they're paying like their body, like, feeling yeah. their body. It's their body's in the same exact spot yeah. because they're believing this shit. They believe that they don't have the potential to be, exist beyond this box. Yes. So that's why I never did it because I, I addiction thing. I do believe in addiction 100. percent I was an addict, but I can't say I don't believe in always an addict. I don't because it, it's. If you change your body change and you learn how to deal with it, it's impossible in, in some way. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Like, I totally understand. And that, that exactly what you're talking about was the reason, like, I could not continue to identify myself as that anymore. Yeah. It just didn't, it didn't, to be honest with you, like, even, 
like I know I, ex- I experienced addiction, absolutely experienced addiction, alcoholism. All the all the like symptoms and markers were there. I still, even though I did the AA and I did the rehabs, and I said, "I'm Sam. I'm an alcoholic." There was a part of me that never really identified as an alcoholic, like deep on a cellular level, like and 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 I. And I know that like if people are out there and experiencing sobriety or addiction, they're gonna. It's hard to separate this, but it it just I I knew that there was something that needed to be healed in me, and I didn't really resonate. I think it was like the the feeling of like the box of like I don't feel like that. I don't want to put myself in that box. And then I think there does come value with saying like you know what. I, I was being I was being an addict and an alcoholic. I was experiencing that addiction, and I think th- recognizing that and taking ownership of that is useful. And then there comes a point when it's for me. There came a point when it was, I need to step out of this box, and and one learn to trust myself. You know, what am I going to do, um, just in life? Like just I need a deeper people. level of trust in myself that I can't. Yeah. And I, the, and the people that I have really close friends, some of my closest friends are guys that are in 15, 20 years in AA. And that works for them, and I love them, and I love that that works for them, and I support them in that. And they support me in my path, too. And it just wasn't my path anymore. Like, I, I just knew that, like, there was more available for me, and it wasn't sitting in a room of AA every day for yeah, an The hour. issue with it, too, is that if you're chalking up all your issues to addiction, you can't really find the source of it. If you're sitting there being like, all my issues are, you kind of, yeah. I think our egoistic minds love to blame all our shit on like easy solutions, right? Like all my shit because I'm an addict. It's like, no, it's just like a fucking laundry list of reasons that takes yeah. years and years and years of slowly getting to. So for me, it was like, if I just accepted I was an addict and I was, I'd chalk all my issues to that addiction, addiction, I wouldn't have found like the bajillion things in my body or the parts of me or the parts, archetypes, all this shit that yeah. I cannot see is like, oh, that, that's what's causing it. So it's kind of like a, that's why I have the problem I have with all these labels, right? When I take a people, like I have my friends who are depressed, all love to them, but they don't do shit because they say I'm depressed. They're not finding out what's fucking going on. They're like, oh, I'm depressed. I can't do this shit. You're not fucking depressed. There's no. parts of you that are, and there's all these things you have to figure out, but it's a journey. Yeah, it, it's absolutely, everything you're saying is fucking spot on. And it's, it's you are experiencing depression right now. You're experiencing anxiety right now. Because every, and as you're saying this, everything, addiction is a physical thing. Depression is a physical experience. There is an emotional attachment to every single physical dis-ease ailment that we experienced. Like last year, I, I had cancer for the third time last year. Wow. Yeah. Are you um, serious? Or? Yeah, I mean, it was cancer. <laughs> and uh, so I had it in 2009 and again in 2011, I had oral cancer, same spot, recurrence, uh, because of binge drinking. And um, I went and I got the clearance, like in 2018, I got clearance from the doctors that said, you know what, it's been seven, six, seven years. Like, unless something really major happens in that spot, you're, you don't have to keep coming back for these checkups. Cool. So last year, I uh, went to Burning Man. After Burning Man, or at Burning Man, this the same spot, like, literally opened up into, like, an open sore in my mouth. And I, I couldn't eat without pain. I could barely talk without pain. Um, it was, like, I was spitting kind of that pink saliva that was, it was a slow bleed. And so in my head, I'm like, okay, this is what the doctors talked about. Like, that spot is activated again. And so I went to see a naturopathic doctor on November 1st <clears throat> and an ENT on November 4th. And both of them looked at it and said, yeah, yeah, that's very ugly. That's cancer. We need to get a biopsy done in the next six weeks and find out what the stage it is and what our treatment plan is. And when I heard that, 
the first thing, I, and this is, I mean, I'm way different than I was yeah. in 2009, 2011, even 2018. And yeah, you know, the, the the waking up and the the consciousness level, I knew as soon as I heard that this is not a physical thing. This is not. This is. A, it's a physical experience of a sore in my mouth, and that that is cancer. And I knew right away that there's an emotional thing here, that is causing this, and it feels like to me a purge of something. And so I got right into the Joe Dispenza work. I got right into the emotional healing work, the trauma work. Like, what is it, what is it that my body needs to get rid of right now, emotionally, spiritually, that is going to cure, that is going to rid me of this cancer? And so it was, it, it, what it was, it was, it was the shame. It was like, it was the shame that I still carried mostly around the addict, mostly around like the embarrassment and the guilt around the attic and, and carrying around other, uh, honestly, it was a lot of carrying around other people's shame that they were putting on me and that I was continuing to punish myself to prove to them how shameful I was. And so that, that's kind of like the attic. Like that's in that shame punishment cycle, it's a cycle. So it's shame and it's punishment. It's more shame, it's more punishment. And, and I was operating in that. And I found out that this was cancer in November and so then I went to Costa Rica. Um, my girlfriend and I, we serve a medicine called Bufo. And so we were invited to serve Bufo down at this retreat in Costa Rica that was an ayahuasca retreat. I sat with ayahuasca as well. And in that last night of ayahuasca, I was faced with every, like almost every time that I was awake at seven or eight or four days later doing cocaine and alone and shameful of that. And uh, I got back from Costa Rica, got, I got the biopsy done, and the biopsy came back, cancer was gone. And, I, and it was because I got into the emotional side of it all first. Like I just said this, I just knew that like you could throw all the chemo and radiation at this you want, it will not go away unless I handle the trauma and the emotional side of what this actually is. Thank God you saw it that way, man, because I, I truly believe that's what it is. Because um, most, you tell, it's the problem with medicine, you tell doctors, um, basically, you know, this is trauma stuck in the body. There's mm -hmm. some emotional component to it. Mostly, they'll laugh at you. But what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. And there's thankfully, thanks to Gavin Rotate, there's more evidence now that yeah. this shit exists and it's real and it's coming out. But I truly believe that. Like, my, my mom died of lung cancer mm. uh, last year. And, and, and Sorry. that happened like a couple months after her mom died. And mm. she had a lot of abuse with her mom. Her mom fucked her up bad. And she never really fully dealt with it. Um, and when she died, it just was so intense for her. Because it wasn't. It's not that she cared as much that she died. It was that she all the shit that was attached to her mom, the trauma came up, and then lung cancer came, and she was dead. She, and then for me, because I knew that, I know that's so I went to the hospital. I was like, this is not what you fucking need. You don't need mm. chemo. Like obviously, you know, to some degree, some people need that stuff. I'm not shaming it, but yeah. in that moment, I was like, this is not what you fucking need. Like there's just so much like pain stuck in your lungs and grief that you have grief. to move and you have to move through. And it just it wasn't that. And then medicine came and never got better. So yeah, what what did it take you for you to to realize that that it that that disease is caused by these repressed emotions? Um, it was doing the work, man. It was like, you know, listening to Joe Dispenza stuff and Gabor Mate stuff and Luis Hay. <clears throat> um, there's a book that Luis Hay has. It's called Heal Your Body. And it's basically a reference book of, like, lungs carry a lot of grief, liver, pancreas, a lot of anger. Um, mouth, the mouth is a lot of um, uh, inability to process life, inability to accept life as it is. So inability... inability uh, and inability to accept myself as that addict form, uh, shameful about that. So, um, just really, just it was it was an inner knowing, man. It was like that claircognizance of like, 
I know deep inside of me, and I've and this is the I've been doing this work for a couple of years now of like understanding that like you know the the masculine feminine sides of the body. Like if you have a problem with like if your chronically left wrist is a problem, it's look at the look at the, what your wounding is with the feminine energy. If it's the right shoulder, for example, like what is the what is the wound you have with the masculine energy? You know anything right side of the body. You'll, you'll hear people that talk about like, oh, I'm always spraining my right knee or I have... I don't have a right ankle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my right ankle doesn't work. Never worked. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. what is the masculine, what's the masculine energy? Yeah. And then you can look at ankles too. Like ankles are like the ground. It's a grounding force. Like it's a part of our feet, which is our connection to the ground. Like where are we ungrounded in your masculine or where are you, um, where did you miss a, did you not have a grounded masculine in your life? You know, you could look at all these things about these different areas of our body and what they mean. And... Diving into that work allowed me to see the to know that like as soon as I heard those words, I was like, yeah, this is. This How do you go from identifying it, right? What was your journey like? It's it's one difference. I think my issue with with psychedelics and the word now is we're obsessed with awareness, mm-hmm. like finding out the answer. Like, oh my god, yeah. I know what's going on. It's like this egoistic, like triumph. Like I am God in some way. Yeah, and that's very different to actually fucking doing the shit, right? So yeah. like, I think psychedelics or the inner work can provide a blueprint. What we have to do, and then reality is walking through the fire, being present with the sensations, right? So, yeah. what is it? What does it take for you? What does it take for someone to identify the the root cause of it, right? For you, was saying this the shame in my coming up here. Yeah. What does it take to clear that? Is it just feeling it? Like, what was your process of actually removing that mm-hmm. sensation stuck in your system? I'm going to give you a break to digest all this amazing information, and in this break, please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you. Yeah, the first thing is you got to figure out what it is, you know, like, and that's really that's a step into the unknown. Like, I could, I if I if I said, okay, I have cancer, and I think, like, okay, that's my mouth. I'm not speaking my truth. Like, if I lock into that, then I'm essentially the only way to that I could possibly. If that lined up, great. If not, it's not going to heal. So the the thing, the first step for me was like, wow. Like, I know this is not physical. I know this is emotional. What is it? Like, show me what it is. Like, what is the real root here? And so, like, stepping into that meditation and being guided and just, like, allowing the wisdom to drop in and trusting that you're going, like, once you ask for the answer, like, you know, please show me the answer. Show me what this is. Then it's about, like, the, the awareness. Yes, the awareness comes when you're like, okay, I'm aware that I have a cancer in my mouth. The second level of that is the openness, the willingness to see whatever it is. And it may not be in detaching from the what I think it is or what I think it should be or how it's supposed to look. And just saying that um, I am open to whatever this may be. Show me what I don't know about this that I need to know. Show me what I'm not seeing that I need to see, what I'm not feeling that I need to feel. What have I been keeping in the dark that I get to shine light on now? Like, show me this stuff that's behind the, the known. What is it that I don't know? And so for me, it was, it was, t- it was I, didn't, I didn't really know it was the shame until I went deep into that ayahuasca ceremony. But I knew that um, it was some sort of emotional trauma. And it, and it was like, and then being, because I thought I had worked through the shame. Like, in my first ayahuasca in 2021, that was where that suicide attempt came up. You know, she showed me, like, you are a shame-riddled human being. Like, that's how you have operated in all your relationships. It's how you've operated in your business. It's how you've operated in 
uh, friends groups, like you just show up as this, like, I'm ashamed of me, please like me. And I said, I asked her, I said, I asked mama, I said, show me the depth, show me how it showed up in my life. And she showed me the suicide attempt. So that for me, I think that is when that cancer first was like recognized because it's a, you know, cancer like in a, in a spiritual term is a, you know, like they talk about like in sports, like a cancer in the locker room, something in that environment, in that vortex that's not serving the greater good. Like that, that unearthing of that shame in 2021 was the, was the first kind of activation of that cancer. So then a year and a half later, it got to the point where like, okay, I'm ready to release this shame now. I'm ready to move through this shame now. And so going and, and really actually taking that another layer deeper, what is in that shame? And then, and then, you know, over the past six or seven months, the integration of that has been, I've been shown every area other than that too, how I show up in shame, where my shame exists, where my shame controls my life, where I'm not free from it yet. And so it's the, the awareness is great. Within that awareness, I think it's very important to stay open to whatever else may be there. Because awareness, we can fixate, like as humans, you talk about, like we can fixate like on a symptom. Oh, I have, I, I, you know, I always get colds or my throat's always sore. Your throat chakra's blocked. Like what are you, where, are you, where, have you, where were you told to shut the fuck up and be quiet when you were a kid? You know, like that's, and that's a generalization, but like, you know, like, let's look at really why your throat's always sore. Why are you always having earaches? Cause what do you not want to hear? Like people with vision problems, like what is it that you don't want to see? And where, where did you, where did you see something in your past that was so fucking terrible that you now have shut down your vision because you don't want to see it. And so, and these are all things that like, when we are open to whatever it may be, that's when the answers truly come in. And if we remain fixated on what we think and what we know, we're going to keep going in cycles. So what you're saying, my understanding of it, which is a good point, is that when you find, if once you get in there is the hardest part. Like finding the actual situation is difficult, but from there it's kind of shining a light on the wound of love. Like looking at the black, looking at the abyss, looking at the shame, the party that, you, that was so destructive to you and then feeling your heart and just pouring love pouring light onto it mm -hmm. and that's the healing to you that's what the that's process is. it's it's compassion and forgiveness because really like these, we talk about these parts of us that these physical symptoms that we experience it's pointing to a part of us that we are not giving attention to not loving on you know you talk about like lower back pain is a big one because like where are you like it's lack of support mostly financial support and so, like, where are you not getting that from yourself? Where are you not? Where are you not? Where is there a part of you, a version of you, that you're not loving on, that is saying, like, it's just, it's a, it's a cry for attention. Please love me. Just please, just show me a little bit of attention. I'm here. Like, I need love. In this moment, 15, 20 years ago, when I was five or ten, I didn't get love, <clears throat> and I needed it. I needed a hand. I needed a word. I needed a, some attention. Whatever it is, go back and love that version of you. And then and reincorporate it into your because we love to exile like it, like oh that time at the at the high school dance when the girl said no to dancing with me like I'm not, don't want to look at that bring that guy back bring that version of me back and and let it in and 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 dance and do the go and like I call this transcending your edges go to because these edges that we operate with are the prisons essentially the triggers the physical pains that we are ignoring. So you go to that thing that where the edge began, the dance, the the child at home, the the sickness, the illness as a kid, and you go and you just say, "I'm going to sit here on this edge for a minute, 
Find a safe place to do it. Sit on this edge and just lean into it and just be here. Man, what you're saying makes a light bulb go off my head. That part of my bullying was by kind of like the, the eight girls. Of, of, I had terrible. I also had like awful eczema. Yeah. With that, and I get infected all the time. Yep. So I was like, and also I was overweight as a kid. So just not a good look. I was <laughs> a terrible buzz cut. Was fucking like. Puss everywhere, wheezing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I was a perfect bullying. Like, I get it, you know? Like, from like mm -hmm. a kid's effect, I get it. Mm -hmm. But then it was mostly like, like woman, like the woman. I was, I've always been a lover. Like, I, I've always loved beautiful women as a kid. Yeah. That was my thing. I guess I'm a lover in this reality. Mm -hmm. And the ones I thought were beautiful would look at me when I was a kid being like, you're disgusting, all, all this shit. Um, and then recently, where I am now, thankfully, I, I had puberty. I gained some charisma. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> where I'd be. But now it's like, I'm getting rejected. I mean, even romantically professionally in ways that just don't make sense. Where any other person in my situation, it would happen, it keeps happening. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, mm -hmm. I'd get, like, a, someone super, like, a situation or someone super interested and out of nowhere, it's like, bang. Like, what the, what the fuck is going on? And yeah. just saying that now, I'm realizing, oh, fuck, it's that I still haven't been able to sit with that rejected person, that, that feeling of, of rejection in, yeah. in some way. I haven't been able to give myself love for that piece of me that felt so rejected. Yeah. So I'm probably attracting the situations to learn how to sit with, with, with this stuff. How did you, I mean, maybe you have some wisdom for me in this moment. How, yeah. how did you, because I'm, I'm assuming that that was also part of your wounding of feeling so rejected and mm -hmm. not being able to, to be present with that rejection. Like yeah. seeing someone not like you, not being able to feel that, like, fuck, that, that mm -hmm. person doesn't like me. I'm able to sit with that. How did you, how can you be the space we are now if you are there where, you can get rejected. When in, rejected, I mean, it's a weird word, but where you can something cannot go your way, and you still feel confident enough for yourself, where it doesn't phase you that much, or you can like lot, or you can love that party that's coming up that's feels yeah. rejected. Yeah. yeah, I think that. So the experience you're having rejection is essentially like, it can look like the external, like oh the girl goes to me or whatever that stopped talking or just fell off, it, it fizzled out. There's an element of you that's rejecting that before it can before it can reject you. Mm -hmm. So it looks like maybe you're getting rejected, which is also just the other side of this is that you're showing up in an energy of like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of there, but I'm going to stop myself right here. And the girl's like right here. And you're like, I'm not willing to go this extra little inch because in that inch is that rejection. Now, the kicker here, the paradox of this is that you end up being rejected anyways. And rejection is a very familiar, predictable place for you to be. And so for me, that like a lot of times, like that was a very f predictable and familiar place. Depression is the reason that people struggle with depression for long periods of time, is because event depression is a very safe. It's it's very painful and and miserable experience. And laying in bed all day, not showering, eating fat food, bad food, like that is a. If we look at that, that's a very safe existence. Yeah. You're not putting yourself in a lot of harm's way. So depression. Although it's painful and and uncomfortable, it's also very safe. And people that struggle with depression kind of always fall have a tendency to fall back into it because it's very predictable and it's very familiar. And so for you, rejection is very predictable and very familiar. For me, rejection was very predictable and very familiar. Because I experienced the same. I had eczema too. I experienced the same. Lots of rejection from women. Like all my friends were, you know, 12, 13, 14, starting to have girlfriends, and I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> Yeah. Like, I would ask girls out and they'd be like, no, you're a nice guy, but no. I'm like, great, I'm a nice guy. Like, that's not getting me girlfriends, right? Yeah. And so experiencing this rejection, you know, later in life, addiction is a form of rejection. You're rejecting society. You're rejecting uh, your role. You're rejecting, essentially, like, whoever leaves, whoever you isolate yourself from, isolation is a mass massive form of rejection. And so 
when we can, when I, now I know that I am 100% fully responsible for my vibration, for my, for the way that I show up. If I, if I, if something doesn't work out for me, it's not that I got rejected. If I don't land a, a high ticket client or if I don't, whatever it is that I feel is, damn it, I should have had that. No. The thing is, is that my vibration is not there yet. My vibration was not a match for that. My, the energy that I was bringing was not, not there with that. And so I get to On a positive and negative note in the sense that like they could have like maybe fuck like they could have been lower than you in a way that it's like it goes both ways. Yeah. 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 And essentially, and then you can look at like, okay, so that didn't work out. It it all works out for my highest good. Like this is like the rejection is a very like that happened to me in energy, right? When we can shift the, the, the levels of consciousness are to me, for me, by me, through me. And so, or as me, through me. And so when we can go from to me, victim mindset, to for me, that everything is happening for me, whatever it is. Um, and so um, that rejection, essentially, in, a, in the grand scheme, you'll look back and say, oh, man, I'm glad that didn't work out. Like, yeah, I dodged a bullet on that. I've experienced that. Like, it's so easy to see in the, in the moment when that thing comes, right? Like, if, yeah. for example, if you were, it's theoretical, right? if, you, if you're getting let's say, rejected by a bunch of, of girls or rejected by a bunch of job opportunities and then your girlfriend, the, the, your ma- love of your life came that month or a, a dream job came that month, right? If you took that date, if you took that interview that you couldn't... So in those moments where it's like, yeah. holy fuck, but what's hard is having that faith when you're in that dry spell, when you're in that space where nothing's going your way. So how, how did you master that? Kind of having faith when your ego is like, well, nothing's going my way. Uh, recognizing that's a victim. Yeah. yeah, recognizing that's just victim consciousness. That's really just me. And and again, like, as this goes back to the childhood thing, like, victim consciousness gives us so much. It gave me so much. It gave me attention. It gave me love. It gave being a victim of asthma, being a victim of allergies, of eczema, being a victim of rejection. Like, it gives, it, 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 it gives us a lot. And so recognizing that it, it, it gives us all that and it also robs us of all that in the same time. You know, it, it's not, it, it gives us that like true, it takes away what is like false attention and false love. It, it, well, it provides that and that is false. So when you get out of victim mindset, or victim consciousness, it, it, you start to experience real, true, authentic attention, real, true, authentic love. And, you know, for me, like part of the, I think part of the addict kind of, I like exciting things, like really like fiery shit. And so um, understanding that, that can, that's great and like passionate love and passionate experiences and an epic life is great. And also understanding that there is massive, massive uh, value in the calmness, in the steadiness of things, the simplicity of things. And really the, the, the big thing that back to the beginning is that getting like understanding that if it, it nothing is ever happening to me, and if if I think it is, I'm being a victim. Yeah. So what you're saying is to almost eradicate. Eradicate is a strong word, but to try your best to to stop the victim narratives. Or if it comes up, like just love it. But you know, well, a lot of Buddhist philosophy that I, that I, that I follow is the analogy they use is like choose what. If our mind's a garden, right? And there's different different thought patterns of consciousness that exist. It's on you, as an observer, to water the ones that give you beautiful flowers right you know so it's yeah, like yeah. stop 
It's almost like stop watering the victim consciousness. Stop, stop, stop Yeah, stop giving, like, acknowledge it and, and, you know, don't let it set up camp. Don't set up camp there. And then, too, if, it, if, it's, if it's something that's real persistent, if you're, like, as you work through these things, as you figure out why it exists, why you are tendency to victim consciousness, then it becomes a catch. Like, oh, I'm being a victim. Cool. Thanks. I'm going to go now. And then it becomes that quick, like literally that quick. But at first, when you first see it and you first like catch yourself in this victim and you're giving yourself reasons to be a victim, creating reasons in your life, <clears throat> external things to be a victim, whether that's scarcity, obesity, depression, heartbreak, whatever it is, you have to first go back and do the work. Like, why does that serve me so much? Yeah. Why has victim consciousness been such an ally of mine for so long? Like, what has it gotten me? And because right now it's not getting me what I want. And, rec- and then recognizing that in the present moment and then saying, okay, but like, all these versions of me that got something really, really great out of victim consciousness, what were they not getting also? What were they, what, what about being a victim was so beneficial to them? And then like just working it all the way forward, working in, it's like a version of timeline therapy where you just, you work through your timeline. And like every time something comes up in the present moment, it is a point to where you're not free. If it's if it's a, if it's a terrible experience, even if it's a if it's a great experience, you get to look at like what have I done to lead up to this. <clears throat> if it's a not a, a don't like a not good experience, you know there's a there's a marker somewhere along the line that points to like this used to serve me or this did me well. Like that my nervous system likes this, so it's it's recreating itself right now. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, I agree. Like I, I do look at. Things have gone wrong in my life, and I do think, how did I attract this? This problem—it's like one of those concepts that really pisses people off. Whenever I write anything about it, people are like, well, "You saying I chose to, you know, get fucking stabbed all this shit?" Yeah. And I was like, "No." <laughs> yeah. All I can say is, in my experience, I can easily pinpoint as, "Oh fuck, I did attract like that situation happened in my life that happened because I, I thought a certain way that got me in that place." Yeah. You, you do you agree with that line of thinking? I hundred percent agree with you, and like a lot of like I'll. So I get the same kind of feedback when I talk about this stuff, and they, they I, say, I understand people say that for sure. I get 100% it. Hundred percent understand. I, get I, it. I totally get it. Um, and I also know, like, when people will say, well, "Like, what about like childhood cancer? Like, what did that child do to attract or create cancer in his in the five year old life?" Now we're getting into past life stuff. Like, what is yeah. that? What is that's part of that child, that soul's contract in this lifetime. That's like my, part of my contract in this lifetime was to experience like I came out of the womb with asthma and food allergies, the umbilical cord around my head. I, breath. Breath is it's why I'm a breathwork facilitator now. Breath has been part of my karmic contract throughout my entire life and it will be throughout my entire life. And that's part of the thing that I'm here on this earth to do, to be, is who I'm being. And to understand that like, yes, that child did not deserve to have cancer. You did not deserve to get stabbed. That is something that you signed up for on an Akashic quantum level a long fucking time ago that you are now experiencing living out. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just people, it's just people tough in, for people who don't think spiritually at all to accept that. It's like I, the wackest thing you could ever tell them. Like, what the wackest, fuck is and, and that's... I get it, I get it. But I, things I know because of my experience and what I have access to, because I'm, I'm as woo as it gets, and I yeah. try and like sometimes like dumb it down a bit because I, I do want to be affected to people over hearing it, but I completely yeah. agree with that. I've seen all that stuff, I hear all of it. I completely get it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I experienced the same thing. And like, and this goes to like, you know, you can't always, people aren't always going to agree with what you say or believe or change the moment you talk to them, but you can never underestimate this, the power of planting a seed. 
Like maybe you just maybe it's just introducing a concept to somebody, and like some people are gonna be like, no. Yeah, but I think one of the topics I want to go into now because we're talk we, we've been talking about a theme in this episode has been the how our individual body points of it in the body are caused by trauma, emotional wounding. If we're to create the societal body mm-hmm. of our humanity right now, maybe in America yeah. or the first world, like or, or Gaia, whatever it may be, what are some of the societal wounds you see in that body that are really affecting us? I think one why I say this is this, is this like, I think a lot of the world right now is like this mass resistance to spirituality, this mass resistance to acknowledging something exists yeah. inside our egos. That's one I noticed. So that's a victim shit too. But mm-hmm. what are some of the things you notice in the societal body that's causing us societal sickness? Yeah, I think that um, one is victimhood. Yeah, like sure. a lot of people want to point to government or to big pharma or to all these things. That's On all like, sides, all sides of the aisle. Everything, yeah. yeah. Like it's all this like they're all out to get us and they're all out to get me. And this whole thing is, and I think that as a collective, like the consciousness says that's, we, that's, you know, going all the way back. Like there's... A, Hitler existed because the collective consciousness allowed Hitler to exist. Yeah. 9-11 happened because the collective consciousness created 9-11 to happen. And now we get into the talk about, like, all events are neutral. And, you know, to most of the world, 9-11 was a terrible thing. To a small portion of the world, the people that follow Osama bin Laden, that was an amazing thing. Yep. And that doesn't make it... Good good amazing for the, the people it's that amazing to those who got power from it. Too. Right. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Sides. It doesn't change the individual experience of it. But we just get to acknowledge that, on a very big level, it's a neutral event. All events are neutral. This podcast is neutral. It just is. Like driving around in your street is neutral. Yeah. And so, as a collective, um, I think that we the, the, there's a lot of attacking going on. Um, there's a lot of a lack of forgiveness of each other. A lack of um, Acknowledgement that uh, people are not toxic. They are toxic behaviors and there's toxic environments. All come from wounding or are uninitiated. Um, people that are just operating out of, you know, the subconscious, like just operating asleep. And so I think that um, one of the big ones is the abuse of feminine. Um, and it's, it's, you know, the, the masculine has been this, like this patriarchy and this overarching thing and terrible things have happened to women. I mean, it's been oppression and, and abuse. And, um, you know, even today, like the pay is not the same and like, there's this whole thing. And I think that there is this element of, um, the pendulum swinging in the other direction of the, the feminine becoming abusive towards the masculine. And this is part of the work that I do is like, is in this, it's not that the, the masculine doesn't deserve it or the feminine deserves to be that way. Again, neutral. It is that there is such wounding that it feels like the pendulum has to swing in the other direction. Yeah. And so there's an imbalance, so to speak, of like the rise of the boss bitch, the rise of like this grind hustle and women, women getting heavy into their masculine. And and then it's it's it, there needs to be a coming back into the center of everything. You know, I think that as a society, you know, we we can look at guys like Andrew Tate or um, like quote unquote like toxic people and just say like, okay, like that that dude is it's not that we produced it. We produced it, and like, what's going on there? Like, what's beneath that? Like, yeah, maybe it's an act. Maybe it's a a publicity thing. Who knows? 
I mean, I don't, I don't know the guy personally, but like, what is really going on there that has created this? Yeah. And I think too, you can look at, and it goes, and there's people on both sides, the stuff with the, the, the transgender stuff, like what is, there's this massive, um, there's lots of shifts happening right now. And I think that you and I like living in this consciousness in the consciousness world is a bubble. And we live in it, so we think it's, like, everything. And I go talk to people outside of it, and I'm using this language, and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's right, you're not in my bubble. (laughs) And not to say my bubble's better than your bubble, but it's just, like, we, it is expanding. And I think that as it expands, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have some real hard conversations with the the person in the mirror. Yeah. And I think it starts, that conversation starts with, the question of why why is this why is this why why am i and why is this present for me right now and then not not driving your own car to the answer just open up why is this present for me right now yeah, i agree with all the overcorrection it, it's almost abysmal but also beautiful in some way because i look at for example just something simple i sound like me like kind of like a chicken saying it but i look at just like Instagram or TikTok comments, and they're all like so hateful. Someone posts the most normal thing, it's like 95% negative comments. I'll get like, yeah. I'll start crying sometimes, just like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. what the actual fuck? Yeah. That most comments on social media on everyone's page are negative and hateful. Yep. Like, I don't even think, like, I, don't, I don't look at the individual doing it. I'm like, how is our humanity at a point right now mm-hmm. where the most of the shit we say is vile? That's crazy. But then I'll go into the other side of it, which is okay. If there's an overcorrection, hopefully this is like the peak of the shit and then it'll yeah. start slowly coming back. Yeah, yeah. But but I hear you. But it, 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 it's it's tough seeing things sometimes. I do know that where I'll see you know any one of the shadows you talk about division. I think right now in this country we're we're as divided as we fucking get, and it's painful my heart. But for me it's like we have to get to this height of pain. Like we all have to really feel in our bodies. This fucking sucks. It's so painful for all of us yeah. to recognize it to make a shift. So it's fucked well, up in a way that we well, have to, that things have to go there. But we're so checked out that unless they wouldn't change unless we're in pain unless we felt the void. Yeah, I think like part of that, I totally agree with you. And part of that checking out is you know throwing arrows at people like narcissism. Yeah. Like the word narcissist gets. I my my uh, friend of mine, Connor Beaton, um, he put up this reel the other day about how narcissist. The word narcissist is getting so overused, because it's just it's basically, um, somebody behaves like an asshole or does something to hurt me, like they're a narcissist. And it's not acknowledging what a narcissist actually is, or even the root, the true root of narcissism which is survival mode in overdrive. And so honoring, like, why, again, like, not taking any compassion or anything into consideration, just putting all this, like, onus onto, like, oh, you're a narcissist, that's why you hurt me. And I think people need to understand, like, this is most things in life, and I say most, I'm, I hesitate to say all because nothing is an all, but most are a 50-50 proposition. Like, two people in a relationship, something goes haywire, we both get to look at the role that each of us played in that collective. Because everything is a microcosm. Everything is a micro of the macro. The human, you talk about the human. Humans don't change unless that pain becomes too much. Like my, my addiction, I'm sure with your addiction, like there came a moment when you were like, uh-uh. Death. Like this, Literally, yeah. I was like, I would have died in yeah. a couple of days. <laughs> Just like look, as close as you can get. Looking yeah. death in the face. Yeah. Right. Like the pain becomes so much that you like you basically get... Uh, like hit in the face with a slap in the face of a weakness. 
you know, and, and, and as a, like as a human, it's almost like we're a little more nimble and a little more quick. We can maneuver a little bit easier as a collective. It's more of like a, a giant move and it takes, there's many more parts in going on. I mean, we have 75 trillion cells. There's 8 billion people on the planet. Like as a collective to get everyone to experience enough pain to change. I mean, probably never happened, but you know, you can experience a shift. Uh, uh, the, do you know the hundredth monkey theory? So, uh, the hundredth monkey is there was a an island where they were doing these science projects, and they would throw um, excess food onto the beach, and these Gabon monkeys, I think they were, would come onto the on the beach and they would collect the food, and eat it, eat all the, the excess food the, the the researchers would throw onto the beach, and then um, the hundredth monkey. Um, when it got to be a hundred monkeys, they started taking the food into the water and washing it off to get the sand off of it and then eating it. And so they noticed that monkeys on an island like 10 or 15 miles away were also taking their food in, into the water and washing it off before they eat the, sa the sand and washing the sand off their food. So that when it was the hundredth monkey was the consciousness tip, the collective consciousness tip that all monkeys started now washing off their food. And so as we work towards, like, where's the hundredth monkey in our, in our collective society, it, it creates that shift. And it's, I, I, I think that story, like, that's part of the work that, I, that, that me and, and my girlfriend do, that we, um, we our company is called the Hundredth Monkey Collective. And so we're working towards, like, who is the hundredth monkey that gets to shift this collective consciousness? What are you guys exactly... What are you guys doing to get there? What's your so that, that is, um, that's the psychedelic, the Bufo medicine, Bufo okay. ceremonies. What does Bufo exactly do? I've so, never, never done it. Yeah. Uh, Bufo is 5-MeO-DMT in its purest organic form, which is from the Sonoran Desert Toad, which is a, a toad that lives in the ground nine months out of the year. And then around September, it went, it's the rainy season down in Sonora, which is the northwest portion of Mexico, southern Arizona. The toad comes out, and the Comcac Indians who live there will go, and they'll harvest the medicine from the glands of the toad and uh, dry it out, and then it becomes this kind of yellow, flaky substance, and you vaporize it, and you take one inhale of it, and it's a direct shot to source. Do you ever think about <clears throat> how the fuck someone discovered that? <laughs> like, There's, yeah. <laughs> like, who, who would have thought to do that? Yeah, so... Um, the, the the toad did the toad provided that yeah like this is like ayahuasca too like you talk the shipibo people like how did you know to put the the ayahuasca vine and the shakuna leaf together in a pot and boil it for eight hours and then it would have this they're like the plants told us yeah like there's these people are so connected with the land and the and the whatever it is yeah that it's 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 a clay it's like a it's a clear cognizance it's a knowing this is there and who, I mean, I don't know who would have thought, like, oh, it's, it's a toad. You know, combo the same way. Like, how did people figure that out? Like, they're going to just poke some holes in the skin and put some poison in there, and, like, you're going to be purified? Like, um, so the Bufo is the Bufo alvarius toad is the genus of speech. That's where the name Bufo comes from. And so it's a form of, it's the highest, it's like the top of the mountaintop of psychedelics and DMT. When you say straight shot to source what is i mean it's hard to put these things into words but what yeah. does a typical experience feel like what was the cra your craziest experience on it what, what or one that taught you the most yeah um again i would uh the word typical doesn't really apply these these experiences are so powerful <laughs> that yeah. like there's no typical experience and there are no words to to explain this okay. it's the ultimate if you know you know um <laughs> that's what we we'd say it like well, you said it's a straight shot to source 
Straight talk to the source. So you inhale this substance, and you how fast do you use like a fucking before you're done inhaling. Like you, it's like a it's a slow, deep, ten second inhale, and then right like you'll you feel it coming on before you're done inhaling. You keep going. You hold the medicine in, and then for the next five minutes, you are not there. You are, and then as the medicine starts to wear off a little bit, it's it's fifteen or twenty minutes is the length of this whole thing. And as the medicine wears off, you're, you're hu- it's kind of like, you know, you go up here, and then the medicine wears off, and your human kind of comes back and meets it here. And that's when you're, you're out of the medicine. Like, well, in 20 minutes, we could be talking like this. Um, my greatest experience was the very fir- the first time that I sat with The first time I sat with it uh, was a meditative dose. It was um, after a Wachuma ceremony in Sedona, Arizona. I was on the side of a river. And my, it was a smaller dose. A meditative dose is about half of what a normal ceremonial dose would be. And so um, I remember my first thought was, okay, life will never be the same. Like I had this, the feeling of unicity that I experienced with nature was insane. Like I looked up at the trees. You know how they, like on Instagram, you'll see like, um, like certain things in the, the natural world look like the eye, a human eyeball. And they'll do like the, the leaves of trees look like human lungs. And I literally laid back after I inhaled this and looked up and I saw human lungs in the trees. And I put my hands on the sand and I was like, I just couldn't get enough. I felt like it was just the most amazing experience. And then a few months later, I had the opportunity to do the full ceremonial dose. And that literally was the day that changed my life. Um, you know, on the healing path for many, many years. And this, this showed me. I've actually been on this spiritual healing path since day one of my existence because uh, because of coming into the world with this karmic contract of asthma and food allergies and eczema and choking on my food and addiction down the road. Like this has been initiation for me for 45 years. And so um, the first thing that I recognized when I came out of the medicine experience was that was the healing I've been looking for since the day I was born. Um, just healing just the word healing healed kept coming into my in my vortex and then the, the next one was surrender um st- like within i wasn't a belligerent drunk or i'm not a belligerent person I've, I've never been a fighter um like that um i'll fight for love and other things but not you know fisticuffs um it was surrender surrender to to what is surrender to life and so um that day just literally shifted i think that was probably the day where that true identification with the addict left me um it, it was it was like the medicine just went in and just said you nope, we're gonna take that out we're gonna take that out and um since that day my life like that that's like i can point to that day and be that's a hockey stick day in my life so where, one of the main messages you got is that you really are not in control in, in some way. Like, yeah, you are in, like, your thoughts and shit like that, but yeah. in terms of, like, the large events and the thing where, where my ego get caught up is that, you know, because I'm, I'm building certain things and I always think, like, I can cre- make this shit out. I can... Part of my, my trauma, which is good in a way, my, my, sh- my soul chose a shadow where I only love myself for being perfect and, mm. and getting things done incredibly well. And that fucked me up for a long time because in, in school and stuff like that because I was a perfectionist and all that. But... It's good in some ways to motivate me to do things, but that being said, my ego is full to believe that like all this is on me. I can will this shit into existence. Mm-hmm. 
But in reality, I know, I know I can't. I know that whenever it does happen, that big moment, like everything kind of comes together. It doesn't do it with me. It's kind of predestined in a way. So that help you get to that space where you can kind of surrender to a larger plan. Or how how did it do it that sort of thing where you kind of felt? Do you feel like you had less like control to will she into existence, or do you feel like it's kind of surrendered to whatever comes up? So, the concept, yes. Excuse me. The the way that it manifested for me was open yourself up, like just like stop trying to control everything and resisting everything. Stop resisting love. Stop resisting healing. Stop resisting um, money. Stop like get into receiving. Get into openness. Get into you know whatever. This is how I ended up into. I ended up in Tulum uh, six weeks later or two months later. Because I just, I didn't know why. I just said, that I, I was like, you, something told me go to Tulum. And so I went. And then that led me to ayahuasca in Peru. And like something told me, like, this is your time. And so just that surrender that I talk about is releasing resistance. So a lot of my resistance was like this gripping on tight to like control of how I think things should be going. And with you talking about like, yeah, you have this, this shadow that's now turned into a superpower. Like it's still all God, it's still all source. Like, yeah, like we get we are this is this is the thing about um the consciousness levels. Like so to me, to me would be um I'm I'm a victim of perfectionism and it's fucking me up in life. Uh for me would be like, oh, like I like to do things I get to do things really well. Like my and then as me would be like, I am on this earth to to do things really well and create for other people, create for the better good, the greater good. Yeah. And so for me, it was um, a lot of self-forgiveness and a lot of, um, you know, I, I, I feel like, like I have a thousand, thousands, of, and we all do, we have thousands of different versions inside of us. And I, I can, like, for all of them to exist at one time is like, you know how like in Superman, there's certain uh, scenes in those movies when he will like fly away from Earth and look back and like hear all the screams of, and the people. And it's like, like just like too many voices like that was my experience of all the versions of me was like it's like overwhelming and in that moment every version of me was present and still and calm and took a breath and i was like okay how can you carry that through in in like everyday life because sometimes i think of so the shadow of this work is this constant analytical obsession with figuring everything out right that you know you have like these, I don't know how many, but let's say like 20, 30 voices, right? How do you not let it get overwhelming? How do you not, cause again, if you're so aware and you know, okay, that's my inner child, okay, that was me, mm-hmm. part of me that snorted cocaine at this point in time, oh, that's me, that was 10, like how do you not get overwhelmed by all those parts of you? Like how do you do that in a way? Take a breath. Like it's, it's really that simple. Like you just like, you, you just understand like in that moment, I'm not centered, I'm not grounded. I am, you know, in the analyzing, overthinking. So many humans struggle with this, and it's society rewards it, right? Society rewards it's a trauma response. It's a comfortable place. Like we feel like if we're overthinking, we feel like we're solving a problem, and kind of yeah. But like you're also stuck in that cycle of obsessive thinking about it. So for me, that that bufo taught me the life skill that I pulled from that was. In any moment, I get to take a breath and just calm down and, and feel that stillness, that calmness of everything's here. What's the next step? What's the first thing to do? Because the overthinking is all of it at once. 
the the reality is that's not possible. The mm-hmm. reality is it's like okay, everything's here. What's the first thing I get to do? What's the what what feels like the right thing to do in this moment? Yeah, I mean, going from you know, if you were doing cocaine, because I used to love Adderall, mm-hmm. and part of that drug is this addiction to being kind of locked into the psyche and being comfortable and being over analytical. We're just like. But you feel sometimes when it's over analytical, it's painful. Where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you kind of overwhelmed with a high level of dopamine. It's kind of like it's awesome to be so stuck in your head. So knowing that you were live life kind of loving being stuck in your head and analyzing things, this is the kind of the last chapter I want to I want to focus on. How did you move from that ob- obsession or benefit from being so analytical to being grounded and trusting the present moment and not thinking about things so much? What was that? Like, what was the human action to do that? Yeah, what did, you, what did it take to get here right now from the place where you were so... For me, like I, I still love, or in some part of me, I used to really love yeah. being so analytical and just yeah. thinking and solving shit all the time yeah. and being up here all the time. If you like stimulants as part of it, so how did you move from that extreme to where you are now in that specific field? Like going from a hyper-analytical yeah. consciousness headiness yeah. to being grounded. Yeah. Um, there's... First thing is reps, recognizing reps like recognizing it. Every time it's popping in, bring yourself back. It's 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 and Bufo was huge for that. Like psychedelic medicine, meditation's been huge for that. Um, getting in groups like Sacred Sons or MPB or like these men's groups where you can like go and be and like w- be witnessed in that. Like ah, you know, and just bring it back. Um, it's a lot of nervous system regulation. So that, that response is the nervous system response of fighting or flighting. Um, and so uh, with that, when you can recognize, like, how do I regulate my nervous system? So there's a lot of things like sacred rage practices. There's a lot of grief practice. There's a lot of hot, cold therapy. There's um, movement. There's creating space in my body, creating capacity in my body for... Because really that over the look, that's a, that's a narrow little like thing that feels really good because it's laser focused and it's comfortable when it, we can realize that that capacity to like expand, like, so you get overthinking is like all the thoughts right here. When you can do this, like all the thoughts now have space. And so this is like, you can't see one from the other. This is like, you can now see the trees in the forest. And so you can pick and choose and, and it allows you to come back to center and really, um, it's 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 every time that I catch myself wanting to go back there, every time that I catch myself doing something that is an old behavior, it is it is that moment of pause, that moment of like. Whew. So this is moving from a reactionary, reactionary. So going into the over analytical, going into like running from relationship, going into the, like a shame spiral. That's a reaction, a nervous system like let's go back here because it's familiar. Let's react, and then we then we can bring in anger or we bring in isolation. Or, what, or overeating, whatever it is, these reactions. When you can say, no, I, kept, I see you coming from over there. I'm going to pause for a second. You pause over there. I'm going to pause here. And then that either, this time, sometimes will just disappear. Other, otherwise, it's like, okay, now I get to say, like, how do I want to respond to, the, to this? And then really, this is integration. You know, integration, we talk about, gets it, it gets put in a box of like, only after psychedelic ceremonies, only after big workshops like we get to integration is an ongoing thing like integrating this conversation integrating whatever it is you're going through in life like if it's a workshop or a ceremony or whatever it is constantly the integration process is constantly catching yourself 
and recentering and doing the reps. And that's really what it is. It's, it's, it's simple as like just showing up and not letting the default programs take over again. Yeah. It's simple, but it is the only way kind of just catching yourself. Cause there's a, there's a leap into the habit or the consciousness loop. There's like a initial yeah. jump, right? Yeah. It's like choosing to see a thought, believing it and then letting everything fall over. You're kind of pulling a string your consciousness yeah. to a, you know, an attic that just, boom, everything comes out. So before you pull the string, you can stop and say, hey, yeah. I'm not pulling that string. But it's a harder process than we think because our mind is so used to pulling the string. Yeah, and we can sit there and justify like, oh, no, I get to pull the string this time. Yeah. Like, I have, I didn't pull it last time, I'm going to pull this time. Yeah. And like, our mind, that's the end look. Like, our, our mind is so, and this is embodiment. Now we're going to talk about embodiment because the mind is such a powerful place and such a safe place that it, it feels good to be up here. This is a scary place to be a lot of times. This is so much smarter than up here. So much smarter. And so when we can free ourselves, do the work, the rage, the um, nervous system work to free the body of all that stuff it's been holding on to, then the, the analytical stuff, because up here it's, it's also like physically and in a way, like the wisdom here is infinite. The wisdom here is limited. And so when we can clear this of all the blockages and the stuckness that we experience, then this has a place to kind of drop in and get filtered and go. But it's, 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 you know, are we in our mind or are we in our body? Like get into the body and become embodied. That's the, that's the groundedness. Is the, the, I mean, the body is literally the connection from the head to the ground. Like this is where we get to be. Do you ever, do you ever answer for that in a way? Like why? Because for example, you know, if I'm simple shit, right? If I'm getting acupuncture or if I'm foam rolling, I'm doing something that awakens like a stuck part of my body, I'll get like a hit. I'll get a, a, a code. And it just came from me just being my body and relaxed. Why do you think, or how does our body give us that? Like, how does this information, like, with my calf? It sounds insane, but like, no, it's true. Yeah, like, no, how, does totally that, how does that happen? Yeah, because it's a release. Because that is, so there's a book called The Untethered Soul where Michael Singer, he talks about, there's a Sanskrit word called samskara, which is a stuck energy. So that tightness in your calf is a stuck energy of something. If it's your right calf, maybe stuck energy around some masculine. Maybe you're in a fight with your friend. I don't know. But, like, so essentially, like, all this flow, like that thing you're talking about, that code coming in, that download, is experiencing the flow. The flow of the universe, the flow of source, the flow mm. of your thoughts dropping in. No obstructions. No, it, yeah, you're releasing obstructions out of your body. So a lot of times, most of the time, these samskaras are in our heart chakra. We close off our heart. And so when we can do this work to relieve our body of these little points of stuckness, we increase the energetic flow, the wisdom flow, the knowledge flow, the, the ability to experience and the awareness, the ability to, to be present to life becomes much greater. Downloads come in. Boom. Boom. <laughs> well, I appreciate all. I got a bunch of, bunch of codes and amazing things to learn. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom and going back to our initial point. I know it's hard saying earn, but you're in your stripes in some way, you know, like you, yeah. you've been through a, a whole lot to, yeah. to get where you are now. And that's kind of what I'll, I'll tell people who are struggling in some way. It's like, you're really being initiated. Just like, I, yeah. I know it fucking sucks. Now I know it's horrible, yeah, but yeah. you have no idea what you're going to learn, how you're going to help people. Like you're, you're getting initiated. Yeah. If you want to be a service, right? It's a choice you make, but like that's, I wish I could tell myself in those moments of addiction, of when I was, my face full in a, in a heap of a pile of, of drugs, just tell myself you have no idea what you're going to gain from this. Yeah. So I totally appreciate it a lot. And where yeah. people find you and, and get some of your stuff? And, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Amazing studio. I love the work you're doing. It's amazing. Um, the earned thing. Yeah, it, it's so true. Like, we do earn our, we do earn a place in life. The, the, the thing that I want to reiterate, though, is that you don't have to earn your worth. 
Yeah. You don't have to earn self-worth. You don't have to earn love. Like that's, that's stuff that is a birthright. And so I think that, again, I'm big on language and, and perceptions. And so if we're thinking like, I have to earn this girlfriend or earn this thing, yeah. <clears throat> that's when it gets a little hairy. But yeah. you're right. Like walking through, you earn your stripes, you earn your badges. I think initiation is a better word for, for what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And it's, again, yeah. It's a, it, it, I, to, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, you know, we earned the right to be here. Like we earned the right to be sitting here talking to each other in Austin, Texas on May 10th, 2023. Like mm-hmm. we had to walk through a lot of shit to get here. Yeah. And I thank you for walking through your shit to get here, man. You too. Yeah. Um, where can people find me? Uh, Instagram's the best place. At Sam Gibbs Morris. That's G-I-B-B-S. Sam Gibbs Morris. And then the website's the same. www.samgibbsmorris.com Great. Well, thank you so much, man. I appreciate yeah. it. Lucas, thank you so much for having me, man. It's been an honor. <laughs>